while you're getting over to Luke 2 in your Bible or in you version, um, it is said, it's been said, and I think it stands true, the, the gospel is the greatest story, the greatest truth, the greatest history that has ever been recorded, and it's the greatest story in mankind's history. And if that is truly the case, then it would stand to reason that the incarnation would be one of the most important stories ever written down in human history. Charles Spurgeon once said the greatest and most monumentous fact which the history of the world records is the fact of Christ's birth. It is so very important, you know, as JP mentioned, we cannot have Easter without Christmas. Because if you cannot believe in a virgin birth, if you cannot believe in the incarnation, then you're not going to be able to believe in everything else that takes place afterwards. And you see, I'm a movie guy. I'm a big movie fan. Uh, when I'm on my days off, I'm watching movies. Uh, I'm just a big movie fanatic. And I love a movie that is willing to... You know, you're watching it and you're thinking, okay, this is just kind of, you know, by the numbers, you know, nothing, nothing different. And then all of a sudden, bam, twist. And you're like, oh man, I didn't see that coming. And, and now I, I don't know what to think. I would have never written the story this way. And, you know, I'm glad I wouldn't have because this person did it and it was great. I, a twist. And I read Luke chapter 2. And not just Luke chapter 2, I read up to Luke chapter 2, where we've been through the book of Luke, and I can't help but wonder, if it was up to us, would we write the story this way? I mean, everything about the story leading up to Luke chapter 2 has been, you know, different than what people expected. You know, Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and saying, Elizabeth, we've heard her cry, we've heard your cry, we've heard your prayers, and Elizabeth is going to have a child, and for them, it's just impossible to think this is, we're, we're too old. We're just too old for this. And yet, they have a child. They have a son. Then Gabriel appears to Nazareth, little out-of-the-way place Nazareth, not a big deal Nazareth, not mentioned in the Old Testament Nazareth, you know, nothing great comes from Nazareth to a teenage girl, nothing special about her. She's not royalty. She's not, she's not famous in any sense in the stretch of the matter. She's, she's engaged to be married to a carpenter, not a lot of money. They're not royalty. They're not, you know, king and queen. They're not, they're not special in the eyes of the world. And yet she's full of faith. And Gabriel says, you're gonna, you've been chosen, you've been favored by God, you are going to carry this child, and this child is going to be the Messiah, he is going to be the Savior, his name will be Jesus, which is Jehovah saves. And it's just leading up, it just seems, would we write the story this way, and thank, thank God we're not God, because God writes the story a little bit different than we would. We would use royalty and kings and queens and exotic places and most, the most important places. And then we get to Luke chapter 2, and it just feels more of this unexpected, these unexpected things that take place, not how we would write the story. Uh, J.I. Packer says it this way, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human babe. 
needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. It just seems like we wouldn't, it wouldn't come the way we expect it to. And yet God doesn't do things the way we expect him to. But what we see in Luke chapter 2 this morning is God weaving events, putting things in place, working everything so that everything goes according to his plan, his, his design. And we see this amazing story in Luke chapter 2, this amazing birth, the, the people that the angel appeared to. It, it's just all of it unexpected but so grand and so miraculous and so wonderful when we read through it. And so we're going to start in chapter 2, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 7. And it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to, the regist- or all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so starting right off the bat in chapter 2, there's something that if we blink, we miss it. This idea that in, this, or in these days there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, if you blink, you'll miss it, but Caesar Augustus is actually really important in history. And he's really important, actually, to this text this morning because of something we'll see later on in chapter 2. So what do we need to know about Caesar Augustus? Well, Caesar Augustus is not his name. The term Caesar, it's a title like king or emperor, So king or emperor, Caesar, and then Augustus. Augustus is not a name here. It is an adjective used to describe somebody. So to say he was highly esteemed, highly favored, that's what it means when you see Augustus. So who was Caesar Augustus? Well, we know that this Caesar Augustus was born in 63 BC, and he was actually adopted by his great uncle, which you have probably heard of this man, Julius Caesar. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who would be assassinated in 44 BC. If you've heard the story, you know the Beware the Ides of March. Uh, he was assassinated. Uh, but his name, this Caesar Augustus, his name was actually. Gaius Octavius, or Octavian. He went by a variety of names. What we need to know about him is he was a greatly skilled man as a military leader, as a political leader. He was one of the most powerful men in the empire. Matter of fact, he would be known as the first emperor of Rome. He was the first emperor of Rome. And it was under his reign that he extended the empire of Rome. It was under his reign that he put out all of these, put to end all of these civil wars and defeated the enemies. And so he grew the empire. But what he is most famous for and what he is known for most is the fact that it was under his reign which we see Pax Romana. And if you don't know what Pax Romana is, Pax Romana simply means the peace of Rome. 
Nobody wanted to mess with Rome at this time. They were a superpower. Nobody wanted to go against them because they were so strong and powerful. And so to live in the province of Rome meant peace, meant peace from your enemies. It meant peace from war because nobody was going to go up against Rome. He was seen as one of the greatest Roman emperors to ever have the position uh, he did a lot for Rome, made Rome what it is. As a matter of fact, the Roman Senate would eventually declare him to be a savior, declare him to be like God. As a matter of fact, it's reported that his very last words were, I found Rome of clay, I leave it to you of marble. And he also was recorded after that saying, Have I played the part well, then applaud me as I exit. So he was a very powerful man, very famous leader, but why this is important, we'll come back to here in just a bit. But we see here that it's under his reign where he declares that the people should be registered. This is the first registration. This is really what we call a census, the first census taken. Well, why does he want a census taken? The main reason is there's all these places that have to pay taxes. If they have a census, it allows them to take taxes more efficiently. And so they, he declares, or declares that this needs to be uh, done. They need to register. And it says that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is the very first registration that takes place under Quirinius. After this, a census would be taken every 14 years. Uh, matter of fact, this isn't the only time Luke will mention a census, a registration that takes place under this governor. A matter of fact, his most famous uh, registration took place in AD 6, and during that 86 registration, it was well known for riots that were caused because of it. In Acts chapter 537, Luke mentions, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions this same thing as well in his antiquities. But here's the thing. Some want to take that census and that we read about in Acts 5.37 and say that, well, he wasn't governor yet, or this was too late, or that if this is the census we're talking about, it's way too late for Jesus' birth, so Luke got it wrong. Luke got it wrong. That wasn't the right census. Luke just got his dates mixed up. Well, that's not really the case. Uh, you know, Quirinius, it said that he was a uh, governor. He was also a military leader from 8 to 4 BC. It's possible when the word governor is used that it can also be used to mean somebody who was just in a position of leadership. So either way, this could be his first census. The word for first here is a word that is in the Greek also translated in spots as before. So we could say this was before that census. I think people just want to try and find a way to say that Luke, who was a physician who would have known how to look for important details, just got this one wrong. That's simply not the case. But now the time has come for this registration, and all had to go to where they were registered, and this would mean that Joseph would have to go from Galilee, or went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem. And so why do they have to go to their own town? Couldn't they just register where they were? For, couldn't he just right here say, hey, uh, I'm from this lineage. 
just mark me down? Couldn't he have just done that? Well, this was likely a stipulation by the Jews when they said you had to go. Uh, because they would register by tribe, clan, and family. In order to do that, they would need to go to their ancestral city because this is where the genealogical records would have been kept. All of their lineage records would have all been kept in that birth city, and so they have to travel there because that's where all the information is. Sad thing is, later on at the fall of Jerusalem, all of those records would be destroyed. But here, they would have to travel to go in where their records were being kept. And we also know Joseph, being a descendant of David, uh, would obviously go to Bethlehem. But Mary, as we see in Scripture, is also a descendant of the line of David, so they would have to go and register there. And we know that he, or David is from Bethlehem because in 1 Samuel 16.1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. A little later in 1 Samuel 17:58, and Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's a tongue twister, Bethlehemite. So Joseph and Mary, they make their way to Bethlehem, and it would have been about 70 miles. And again, this is where people ask the question, okay, I get that Joseph would go, but why does Mary have to go? I mean, think about it. At this point, she is pregnant. She's getting close to her due date. This would have been a very hard trip for her to make. Couldn't he have gone by himself and just, uh, you know, leave her here with her family and you know, you go and register and come back. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why she goes with them. One, it kind of appears at this point, it says here in Luke that they were betrothed, but over in Matthew chapter 124, it says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. A lot of people believe that this means that at this point they have already become married. They have already had a ceremony and now they're just waiting until uh, the birth of Christ to consummate their relationship. So if this is the case as husband and wife, maybe he felt, okay, you need to come with me. I want to I be there with you uh, when I do this. And leads us to another reason. I think they realize, okay, you're getting close to your due date. Uh, they want to be with each other when that happens. They want to be together when that takes place. Also, I think another reason is, I think it probably would have been good for Mary to get out for a little bit after probably people talking. There probably had been rumors, things like that. But I think they also both knew who this child was going to be. Mary knew. Joseph knew. They knew who this child was going to be. And we know that Mary has a pretty strong knowledge of the Old Testament, right? We see her in her, her song of praise to God, her quoting all these Old Testament scriptures and making allusion to the Old Testament scriptures, I have no doubt in my mind that they probably knew the prophecy that this child would be born in Bethlehem. And so it seems like what a perfect time to go to Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 tells us, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And here's another fun fact for you. I didn't realize this until this week, actually. You know what the word Bethlehem means? The word Bethlehem actually means 
house of bread. House of bread. And what a fitting, fitting place that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, when in John 6, 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Hmm. Coincidence? I, I don't know. And while they are there, the time has come for the baby to be born. It says that this would be Mary's firstborn child. Why firstborn child? Why does Luke record that it's her firstborn child? Well, one, this would show legal status in regards to the law, the, the law, the right of the firstborn child. But also we know that Mary would have other children as well. Jesus wouldn't be their only child. Matthew 13, 35 is not this, the carpenter's son is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. We also know that he had some sisters. We see that later in Matthew. So the time has come for the baby to be born. And here's where I got to vent for just a second. When it says, the baby, it's time for the born, the end of this says, because there was no place for them in the end. Now, I'm sure probably every one of us in this room have watched Christmas movies and seen holiday movies. And we've probably seen at some point a Christmas movie that talks about the birth of Christ. And when we watch these movies about the birth of Christ, we kind of get the sense and we've kind of put it into headcanon that when we read that there was no place for them in the end, it was just, everybody was just kind of rude. We kind of get that sense in some of the movies we watch and we kind of put it in our headcanon that, man, these people were just, nope, sorry, can't stay here, keep moving. You gotta move along, no room for you here. But this just really isn't the case, that people would be so inhospitable. Matter of fact, uh, in his commentary on the life of Christ, Mark Moore explains this in a pretty good way. He says, first, Palestinian hospitality is great. Certainly, someone would have made room for the couple, especially since she is about to burst, and this was his ancestral city. Second, ends were more of a Roman conception than Jewish. Since Bethlehem is not a major city, nor any other, nor on any trade routes, it's not likely that they would have had much more than what was known as a flop house. The fact is, this word is better translated to mean guest room. Hence, we would suggest that Jesus was born in a private home, not a barn. Why then would there be a manger, i.e. an animal feed trough, inside of a home? Well, it's been explained that Palestinian homes often have an entry below the family living area, Luke 13, 15, for example. The animals are brought in at night to keep them from being stolen, to guard the house, and to heat the house during winter. There would, of course, be feed troughs either attached to the wall or between the entryway and the raised family living area. The bottom line is that it is common to find mangers in Palestinian homes kind of different than the way we see it portrayed in this barn-looking stable. Uh, Another possible scenario to this is that Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem at whatever home or lodging they had arranged. There would have been other traveling families there as well. There would have been Roman, uh, you know, there would have been Romans there who were part of the government there to help with the census taken. 
And so it's likely that maybe they stayed, or it's possible that they stayed with other traveling families, but a place suitable for sleeping is not necessarily suited to delivering a baby. And so it's possible that Mary may have had Jesus in a covered courtyard or an attached type stable, or she could have given birth to Jesus inside and taken him away from the other people to recover in a more private setting. Others believe that that has been passed down in tradition that it was a cave-like structure. What matters is the fact that either way, whether it was born in an inn on the, the bottom where the animals would come in or it was out in a cave, what matters is that there isn't this kind of lack of hospitality that kind of gets painted in some of these movies or these things that we read or watch, like they were all just so rude to her. They're like, sorry, nothing here for you. Keep moving. It doesn't seem like that was really the case. But what we do see here that is important is that this child is born into such humble beginnings. And we see that this child is swaddled in cloth. This would be for warmth and protection and placed in a manger. A manger is simply a feeding trough. And this child, again, born into such humble beginnings, was not born to a royal family, but to a poor couple. Not born in a palace, not born in a place with kings and queens and royalty, but in a place reserved for the animals. And I think all of this just points to the life that he would live, a life of humility, a life of gentleness, a, a humble life. But then we come into verses 8 and 9. We see what happens next after the birth. And it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. You know how we mentioned the story maybe not being written exactly the way we would think about it. And if we were writing this story, it's probably likely if we were honest with ourselves, the first people the angels appeared to wouldn't be shepherds. They would be priests. They would be religious leaders. They would be, uh, you know, the religious elite, right? Not to these shepherds. I mean, why shepherds? Why not the religious leaders of their time? Why not the priests? Why would they appear to shepherds? I mean, think about it for a minute. To be a shepherd was seen as the lowliest of occupations that someone could have. It was the lowliest occupation. And the reason it was so lowly and they were considered to be outcast is because the work they did made them ceremonially unclean. Every single day, they would deal in dirty work. They would deal with dirty, smelly sheep, their manure. They would have blood from cuts and scrapes, the insects that buzzed around them. All of these things would make them ceremonially unclean. And guess what? Because they were out in the field for so long with the sheep, they never had opportunities or time to get to the temple so that they could be made clean. Matter of fact, it said that they were so untrustworthy in the eyes of the people that if they were witness to something and they were called in to give testimony in court, really they wouldn't give testimony in court because they were seen as so untrustworthy. Their word didn't matter. And so why? Why the shepherds? Why does Luke record this in this gospel? Why does he say this? Well, I think 
Luke records this. I think this is the case. I think this is why the angels appear before the shepherds because it reminds us that God's grace is for all people. For all people. Not just the greatest of these, the, the elite of these, but also for the least of these. Remember and who it is that's often called. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's often the poor and the lowly, the the ones that are considered weak or foolish in the eyes of the world that are the ones that are called. I like how R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, when God appeared in the burning bush to call a leader to bring forth the exodus, he chose a man living in exile in the Midianite desert who was tending sheep. His name was Moses. When Israel became a nation, there came a time when a shepherd boy, David, was anointed king. Even if we go to the age of the prophets, we find Amos, not a man of great stature, but a shepherd whom God called into service for himself. Many prominent people in biblical history were called by God from the realm of the culturally insignificant to be his servants. He called those who were lowly, those who were considered weak in the eyes of the world. And think about this, the idea of shepherd We hear it used so often in relationship to those who care for God's people. And all of this points us to Jesus, who is, as he says, the good shepherd. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And what I think is so cool about these shepherds, it's it's very likely that as these shepherds are watching sheep this evening, they're unceremonially clean, they're dirty, they're insignificant, but as they are out in these fields, they are watching the sheep, the lambs that are very possible, or that will very possibly be used for sacrifices. And then we see the glory of the Lord shine around them, and they become afraid. And as kind of often as we see in Luke, people become afraid while in the presence of an angel, but they're not just afraid, they're greatly afraid. A matter of fact, the phrase here literally means frightened with massive fear. They are frightened with massive fear. I liken this to when I see a mouse. Uh, if you didn't know, um, I'm terrified of mice, and when I see a mouse, I am frightened with massive fear. Um, I, used to be- I used to believe that you know, if I stayed on the, the couch, mice couldn't climb. And then when I found out, I was like, man, is there no safe space? (laughs) But there was great fear. And we've talked about this. Fear is a common result because an angel appearing is not always for good news. And remember, these are powerful beings showing up before them. And we go into verse 10. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in a swaddle and cloths and lying in a manger. You see, it's kind of common in the book of Lucifer. An angel appears. It's interesting. We don't have a name for this angel. It could be Gabriel, but we're not told. This angel tells them to fear not. 
And he tells them to fear not because he has good news. And what Luke shares here, shares here really fits in line with kind of the theme of this book. The angel says that the good news of great joy is for all people. It's not just for the Jews, but for all people. All people. For you and for me. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And here is the good news. Unto you is born this day the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The word here for Lord is a word that means supreme power or authority. And that is who he is. He was born as Savior. He was born as one who has supreme power or authority. And this had been prophesied by the prophets of old, and we're seeing it come to fruition. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then I love what the angel does here. We've seen this done a few times already in Luke. He gives them a sign to know that what he says is true. For Zechariah, his sign was the fact that he wouldn't be able to hear or speak until, the, or until his son was born. With Mary, she's been given this sign. Elizabeth was be with child, or is with child. The one who couldn't be with child is with child. For the shepherds, they would know when they saw him because the angel told them what to look for. A baby swaddled in cloth, lying in a manger. The angel gives them signs. There's always a sign, it seems, to go with this idea so that people know that what they are hearing is truth. And then, verses 13 and 14. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Imagine this, you're sitting there, you're already kind of terrified at what's going on, and then all of a sudden the most extraordinary sight to behold, a whole collection, uh, this is a multitude of the heavenly host, a multitude of is a large number. Nobody knows how exactly or how many angels are here exactly, but this heavenly host, all of these angels appearing, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom his favor rests. Let's break this down for just a moment. Glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. I love how Warren Wiersbe describes this. He says that this is a reminder to remember that the whole purpose of the plan of salvation is glory to God. The whole purpose for the plan of salvation is so that God receives the glory. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, Paul says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Ephesians 1, 12, 
Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, in Ephesians 1 and verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The plan of salvation is for us to receive that salvation so that we can bring glory to him. And we saw God's glory in the Old Testament We saw it in the tabernacle, we see it in the temple, we see the glory of God depart from his people as well. But here we see his glory revealed in his son, in his son that was born. And he would receive the glory in the work that Christ would do, and he would receive the glory in our salvation. And peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Jewish word for peace is shalom. And it's a word that means things like well-being, health, prosperity, security, soundness. And I find it so interesting, and this is why Caesar Augustus, why we talk about Caesar Augustus right at the beginning, because he brought about Pax Romana. He brought about peace of Rome, and peace of Rome was a big, important thing for the people. It was peace from war, peace from battles. But you know what Pax Romana was missing? You know what the peace of Rome was missing? It could bring protection for those in Rome, but it wasn't peace for the heart of man. It wasn't peace for the soul of man. Again, Warren Wearsby, I love how he describes this. He says, what was the good news? Not that God had sent a soldier or a judge or a reformer, but that he had sent a savior to meet man's greatest need. It was a message of peace to a world that had known much war. The famous Pax Romana had been in effect since 27 BC, but the absence of war doesn't guarantee the presence of peace. The Stoic philosopher philosopher Epictetus once said that while the emperor while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. You see, this is a peace that he could not provide. This is a peace that can only come from God, a peace that is unlike a peace from war, a peace from dangers around him. This is a peace for the inner man, the peace for the heart of man that that no emperor could provide. This could only come from God. And on earth, peace among them with whom he is pleased This is an interesting phrase here, with whom he is pleased. In the KJV, it uses the phrase goodwill towards men. And a lot of people have an issue with these words, this translation, because a lot of scholars disagree with this translation because it kind of paints a picture that man has earned this goodwill. That, that man has done something to deserve it or that man has done something to deserve the, the salvation, the, this peace of God, that we've done something to deserve it. And we know the truth is that nobody has done anything to deserve this peace that comes from God. The literal Greek, however, says men of his good pleasure, which means he gives it as he pleases, not because of what men has done. And I think that what this is saying is that this is for those, this peace that we can have comes for those who believe. And we, we know this because the word tells us this. In order to receive eternal life, in order to receive this 
heavenly inheritance, what do we got to do? We have to believe in his son. We have to believe in his son, put our faith in his son. And the problem is there are many people in this world who will refuse to do that. There are many who will refuse to put their faith and hope and trust in the Son. You see, this is hope and peace, but only for those who are willing to accept God's Son. John three sixteen through 18 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so what I think the angels are praising here when it says, with whom he is pleased, I think what the angels are celebrating here is God's mercy to those who give their lives to him, who give their, or who believes in the Son. Jesus talks about this, John 6, 28 through 29, and they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Hebrews eleven six. and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This peace with whom he is pleased are those who will believe, accept his son. Believe in and accept his son. Then we go into verse 15. Verses 15 through 21, it says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And I love what happens here with the shepherds. They hear the message, they believe the message, and they pursue the message. They say, we've got to go and see this. And so they go. They go, and they probably left the flock. They were watching to, to someone else to manage so that they could go. I, imagine, I wonder if it was they, drew, they had to like draw sticks or something to figure out who was going to go. One poor shepherd or two poor shepherds had like, oh, man, I guess we've got to stay behind. Somebody's got to watch the flock. It doesn't tell us how that played out, but we see that they go. We see that they go, and Scripture tells us that they went with haste. I like that word, haste. I looked it up, what the definition of the word haste was. And one of the definitions I read, it said, excessive speed or urgency of movement or action, hurry. They moved with an urgency, with excessive speed, a, an urgency of movement or action, had to hurry up and get over there as quick as they possibly could. And they had a little ways to go. This was probably about two miles where they were to Bethlehem. And when they get there, they find Mary and Joseph, and most importantly, they find the Christ, the Savior, Jesus laying in a manger. And what's really kind of neat about this to me is that they make such great haste. They make such great haste. They've got to go and see this child. They have to go. They can't wait any longer. They've got to go. They go as quickly as possible. But then you read over in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come. They're before Herod. 
where is this child that was born? He would have been about two years old by the time that the wise men get to him. He appears before them, asks where this child had been born. Herod asks the religious leaders, the priests, they say, in Bethlehem, and none of them go to validate this themselves. The religious leader, the priest, they don't say, let us go to Bethlehem, let us make quickly and go to Bethlehem and see this. No, Herod says, when you go and see them, come back and tell us where he's at so that I can go and worship him. We know what the plot was really there. But these shepherds, they make great haste. They got to go and see what was told of them. Told to them. And look what they do. When they get there, they tell people about what had been made known to them. And the people are amazed at what they hear. And I can't help but think, is this not what we are supposed to do when confronted with this truth? When we hear the message, we believe the message, we see Jesus, we believe, shouldn't the next part of that be to be witnesses? And this is what they do. They hear, they believe, they pursue, they see the Savior, and then they become witnesses of this. As a matter of fact, I've heard many people call this, these are the first evangelists in the New Testament. These are the first evangelists. They go and they tell people about what they've heard, and they'll tell people about what they've seen. And I can't help but think, shouldn't we have this same desire? Shouldn't we be doing this exact same thing with haste, be telling people about the meaning of this season, what this season really truly represents, why it's so important? Shouldn't we be making great haste to tell people why this holiday is so important? And what's interesting is their testimony may not be valid in court, but for the angels, for them, you know, what they say is valid. Nobody might have listened to him. The Jewish leaders might not have listened to him, but guess what? They are sharing a testimony of what they have seen. They're telling, they're being witnesses about the prophecy of the coming Messiah that has been fulfilled. We should have that same desire and passion to share what God has done, just that these shepherds had. And then there's Mary. Oh, man, can you imagine what is going on in the mind and the heart of Mary? I mean, think about this. Everything that she has to think about and ponder and to wrestle with in her mind, to, to put it into all these proper perspectives. I mean, she, she's heard what happened to, she's heard and seen what happened to Zechariah. She's heard and seen what happened to Joseph. Uh, she's heard and seen a pregnant Elizabeth. All of these, and now the shepherds are coming up and saying that these angels appeared and told them all of this. And I can't help but wonder what is going on in the brain of Mary trying to process all of this. Soon she's going to hear from Simeon. She's going to hear from Anna. She's got so much to try and put into perspective, and yet she treasures all these things in her heart. And back to the shepherds for a moment says that they leave here and they go and they rejoice and glorify God for what, he, for what they had seen. They knew what this meant and they praised God for it. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment. But we see on the eighth day, following the, the law that had been said, the boy would come and be circumcised and he would be called Jesus, which was the name that had been given, which means Jehovah saves. Now, Let's go back to the shepherds. Let's go back to the shepherds because I think their response here, they return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and as it had been told them. I want to go back to them because I think that this is what our response needs to be. 
This is what our response needs to be because, let's be honest, we know why this story is so important. I hope we do anyway. I hope we understand and realize why this story is so very important. It's important for us. It's important for everybody to hear We read scripture and we can see why this child is so important. We know what he grows up to become. We know what he grows up to do, what he would teach, what he would preach, the words that he would proclaim. We knew the life that he would live. We saw all these things that he would do. And ultimately, we know what it is exactly that he would do for us. You see, in Luke chapter 2, we see prophecy fulfilled. But can I point you to a prophecy that would be fulfilled? later on it comes in isaiah chapter 53 who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the off of the land that was living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he was put or he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be acquainted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with his transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, you see, Jesus was born Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the one who would save us from our sins, who would be the sacrificial lamb, who would lay down his life for us. Christmas is so important. It is the the true meaning of the season. is isn't gifts under the tree. It's not all these things that we make Christmas out to be. Christmas, at its core, what it truly is, is the Son of God coming to earth in human form who would be our sacrifice, would take on death for us. And guess what? His sacrifice would bring us reconciliation with God. All the way at the beginning, we broke that reconciliation, or we broke that relationship with God and our sin that separated us from God. In this sacrifice, we have reconciliation with Him. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We have every reason this morning to praise God. We have every reason this morning to leave this building and to go and glorify God for what it is he has done for us. And he didn't have to do any of this. He could have cast us away. We sinned, we fell short. He could have said, I'm done with you. I'm done with you forever. I don't want to have it. But no, that's not what he did. He sent his son. In his mercy, he sent his son. But remember, here's the thing. This peace, this hope we have, it all comes in the fact that we have to believe in his son. That he is who he says he is, that he has done what he said he would do, that he, everything he has done, we need to believe in him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they make their way up, maybe you are here this morning and you have yet to follow him. Maybe this morning you've never believed in him, you've never given your life to him, You've been, you've been walking for a long time in the, the world thinking, man, I just want peace, I want peace, I want hope, I want peace, and you've been looking in all the wrong places and all the wrong things. And if that's you, please don't leave here this morning without talking to me, talking to Cody, talking to one of our elders. We would love to talk with you about this. It's important so very important. Or maybe you are here this morning and you've been struggling. This time of the year, it brings nothing but troubles and burdens and stresses, and it has you so distracted that you have been missing the reason for this season. Man, you've been going through heartbreak or heartache. You've been struggling with things, and you've been looking for peace. We know that peace can only come, this peace that we need in our soul and our hearts only comes from him. These things that we chase after, these things that we hope bring us peace, they're fleeting, they're temporary, they're momentary. But his is a peace that is lasting and long and good. And so if that's you this morning, maybe you've already, you believe in him, you've been following, maybe it's just you've gotten distracted, maybe these things of this this life are getting at you and you just need to pray and right where you're sitting you can do that you can come up here I'd love to pray with you I know the people around you would love to pray with you but this morning we know that the reason for this season it's, it's not the gifts under the trees it's not the, the movies we watch on TV it's not the it's not just the Christmas music we sing no, we know that the true reason for the season is what God has done for us. Sending his son into a broken world to be a sacrifice for you and for me, broken people who do not deserve this. And yet in his mercy and his compassion, he sends us hope, peace that comes only from him. If you're here this morning and you need to talk about following him or you just need to pray, please do so as we stand together and we sing.